my name is Justin Kluwer, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about a favorite of me and Will's, Terry Gilliam. Here's to the dreamers. Or is he? Yes. Well, you know, Terry Gilliam, I will probably always think of as one of my favorite filmmakers. A hundred percent. When I picked up a digital camera when I was in junior high and I started making movies, I'd be like, all right, I want to put the camera on its side. I'm going to do like this Gilliam camera shot. Like his visual style already meant something to me. I mean, he is one of those ideal entryway directors, at least for young boys, Mm. in the sense that he has a strong, recognizable personal style with recurring themes. His style is very energetic and weird. Off screen, he's this like nonconformist guy. He's battling the studios, these know-nothing people who want to stifle artists. Even as a teenager, I knew that his career was a difficult one. He couldn't get his movies off the ground. Every step of the way, he was fighting these businessmen that want to keep the artists down. And that means something to a kid, right? Because Mm -hmm. it's somebody trying to put their personal vision on screen. And for me, my love for Gilliam started and was solidified with Brazil, Mm -hmm. which we should talk about first, because I think out of all of Gilliam's movies, this is the one that me and you know by heart. For a long time, it was on like my second favorite movie of all time. Yeah. And I'm questioning myself now, like, when did that go away? Was it the last time I watched it? in theaters or even on DVD. I I don't know, but at a certain point, maybe because I watched so many other Terry Gilliam films, it was kind of overshadowed by them in some way. Or, you know, I just know it too well. There was a time when I probably would have had uh, Brazil, like in my top 10. Mm -hmm. And it's the ultimate articulation of the the Gilliam-esque style. One of the pleasures of Gilliam and something, something that I think makes him worth reckoning with and that you don't see anywhere else is this particular vision of the future that he has Mm -hmm. where it's like a future that is entirely made out of like the compost of the past it's a future where everything is engineered to be as efficient as possible in the most inefficient ways yes it's a future where all of these rules have been set up in place and no one can question them because they are rules. It can be exemplified perfectly by the fact that everyone has tiny screens in Brazil that they use giant magnifying glasses to read. That is so funny and so clever in a way to just illustrate this idea. And you know, the world around him is crumbling. Mm-hmm. I mean, even in a movie like The Zero Theorem, where his style is a bit ossified mm-hmm. and where, you know, it's not a very good movie, but there are a couple of moments in The Zero Theorem where it's like shot in some Eastern European city that's already crumbling and, you know, all the costumes are made out of like thrift store materials Mm -hmm. and, you know, people are riding old bicycles and they have old TVs where it's like, yeah, this is, this is that Gilliam style. Nobody Mm -hmm. else gives me this. I love this. And something like Brazil not only has that kind of um, dystopian angle that every teenage boy loves. Every, like everyone goes through a phase where it's like 1984, Fahrenheit 451. Like these are the books that speak to me because it's rail against the system and here you have Gilliam doing that with the mad magazine aesthetic that he has that the whole world is a gag that stuff can be happening in the background like uh, Sam Lowry played by Jonathan Price is sitting on a uh, streetcar and all men are sitting down and there's one woman standing up and she's pregnant and she has one leg and that's the joke of the scene and you know with the kind of George Orwell light Mm -hmm. stuff it's like 
you know, he's railing against stuff like, you know, capital B bureaucracy, mm-hmm. uh, capital F fascists, you know, the capital P police state. And it seems very, you know, very profound and deep. When yeah, you're a kid. especially when yeah. you're a teenager, yeah. because you're like, oh, man, look how crazy the real world is. And while the real world is crazy and you can rail against it, when you go further into uh, Gilliam's filmography, it gets a little bit more difficult for him to handle and present it in an interesting way. But in Brazil, like, you got it all. Mm-hmm. It's way over long. It's packed with dream sequences. Like, the number one thing that you tell people, like, hey, don't include too many of those things in your movies because they are self-indulgent and they usually don't need them. But man, oh man, Terry, self-indulgent Gilliam, he loves dream sequences. It's full of, you know, surprising and delightful images. Mm-hmm you know, the sorts of images you don't see anywhere else. It's got a great cast delivering very Python-esque performances, mm-hmm. including Michael Palin as, you know, the protagonist's best friend. Oh, what a what an amazing role as the nicest guy in the room, which Michael Palin is often considered by everybody who meets him, playing like a nice guy who's also the most awful person because he's doing these terrible things, but he has a smile on his face. And in the other room, he's taking care of his daughter who's playing with some blocks. Robert De Niro's in there, Mm -hmm. you know, with with a charming supporting performance, uh, Bob Hoskins. And then it's grounded in a way that a lot of Gilliam films are not by Jonathan Price, Mm -hmm. who's the straight man in the center of this world. And he is playing a selfish weenie who has these ideas of romanticism that, you know, real life can't really replicate. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's fun to follow him do these things. He's bad. And the movie, as he's going along, he is kind of waking up to a moral consciousness. Mm -hmm. Like he's railing against his rich parents, um, but he's also falling in love with this person that maybe is or is not a terrorist. Mm -hmm. And then you have around him this constructed world, Mm -hmm. which when I think of Gilliam, that's what I think of, this impossible space. Now, this is something that I think we've lost with Gilliam. A hundred percent. Because... A movie like Brazil or Time Bandits, they're so tactile. Mm-hmm. They're so, uh, like, they they look fake in a very charming way, you know, made out of models and rubber, a lot of smoke. And now they're, you know, CGI worlds. And also, you know, he, he keeps returning to this idea of this society that wants to stifle us. And so the only way out is through, like, uh, dreaming and, and imagination. And, yeah. And, you know, throwing off the shackles of what polite society demands of you and just, you know, following your own path, which I can understand. It makes sense in some of his films and in others, it really doesn't. I mean, I think there are limits to that as like a, a political strategy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 100%. Um, and also, you know, there's a, a weird current in his movies not so much Brazil, but in the other ones of like mental illness mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, uh, you know, it's that it's that corny like K-Pax shit of yeah. like, you know, who's really crazy society or the people who society deems mad. I mean, you watched The Fisher King again this week, which I didn't. But I have to say that, like when I was in my Gilliam fever, I watched The Fisher King and was very disappointed by it. Uh, principally because everybody said it was amazing, and secondly because it did not replicate that kind of fantastical Gilliam that I love so much about Brazil. This is him trying to make a studio picture, he's trying to ground himself, and I kept waiting for it to kind of like explode in flights of fancy. Then it does very briefly, there's a famous like a dance sequence that takes place at Grand Central Station. And other than that, that's pretty much it. It's mostly Robin Williams just, you know, hamming it up against, uh, Uh, sleazy Jeff Bridges. Well, you know, um, watching The Fisher King again, 
I did not feel like I was at a loss for Terry Gilliam's style. There's uh, a lot. Fisheye lenses. I specifically remember when Jeff Bridges remember how he, a little bit to blame for the death of Robin Williams' wife, you see like crazy slow motion as someone blasts through a window. Yeah, so the plot of this movie is that Jeff Bridges is a Howard Stern type shock jock. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, railing against yuppies and uh, railing against anyone. No politics, so, so yeah. to speak. Uh, and he is saying something about, oh yeah, these yuppies, it's them or us. And, you know, one of his crazy listeners goes up and shoots up a restaurant a couple years later he finds this weird crazy homeless man played by robin williams who it turns out his wife was killed in that Mm. incident and he feels this obligation to sort of follow him around and help him out and bring him back into society so you know this is a movie that was actually quite popular when it came out it brought it put gilliam's career back on track after feuding with the studios throughout the 80s It's very baggy. It is. So one of the things that people, I think, rightly say about Gilliam is that he's not much of a storyteller. Uh, Yeah. I I mean, he's 100% interested in the visuals. And even someone like Eric Idle, when he was talking about Gilliam, was like, you know... Gilliam isn't really interested in emotion in his films. Mm -hmm. And while Fisher King is kind of all about that, Gilliam struggles a little bit with how to kind of direct it. I think his movies, like, I'm not often amazed by the performances in his movies, Mm -hmm. although the Fisher King has some good ones. Yes. Wasn't uh, some people nominated? Mercedes Rule won an Oscar for it, Mm -hmm. giving, I think, the least interesting performance of the (laughs) movie, actually. I think Amanda Plummer, Robin Williams, and Jeff Bridges are all better. Wow, she won an Oscar for it? She won an Oscar, I thought it would have been Amanda Plummer if it was anybody. Amanda Plummer's great in it. Ah, oh, she's fantastic. But his movies, like, they don't really... The, the the actors, it's hard to exactly follow them on their arcs because mm-hmm. they all start at 11. Yeah, and uh, they just, you know, remain at 11 the entire time. And, you know, they don't follow a clean three-act. Mm-hmm. Stri- like, they meander, yeah. you know. But I do think The Fisher King is, like, a little bit offensive where it has all these scenes in, you know, hospitals and mental wards if that's the phrase i'm looking for there are all these sort of like kooky funny mentally ill characters played by michael jeter for instance Mm -hmm. who are getting into shenanigans and you know the movie kind of comes on the idea that well actually you know maybe robin williams is a a mad genius And (sighs) and and if he can just if he can just conquer his his old fears if he can sort of self-actualize through the love of this woman then you know the the trauma will be over that is a very toxic um lesson to impart to an audience yeah and you know all i would say is don't watch the fisher king again because you're going to be disappointed i think but that kind of rebelling against the medical establishment can even be seen in something like brazil where his mother is getting all this plastic surgery and the doctor is like (laughs) you know uh we have to do this we have to do that or there's the woman who's getting the acid treatment and she's essentially melting as the movie goes along yeah i like that stuff though (laughs) it is and because that's a a different kind of rebelling (laughs) but it's essentially the same song played a different way right yeah well with that one he's kind of going to class a little Mm. bit more and gilliam says that like that kind of distaste and distrust against these uh, figures of authority Mm. is something that he had when he was young. Mm. He likes to say that he grew up in a very happy household. His parents were very respectful. They never fought that much. And that, I mean, we'll talk about this a little bit later. He's like, ah, if only I had been born blind or some medical illness, somebody would care about me. Yeah, he needs to shut up. (laughs) Yeah, about that kind of stuff. (laughs) He went to art school. 
He worked for Harvey Kurtzman, who was one of the famous artists for Mad Magazine. He moved to England, where he worked with some of the Pythons, Eric Idle, Michael Palin, Mm. and Terry Jones, on this children's show called Do Not Adjust Your Set, where he did animation. Mm. And then the creative team behind that show merged with... Graham Chapman and John Cleese, and they created Monty Python's Flying Circus in 1969. And everybody knows Monty Python's Flying Circus. They know the movie uh, Monty Python's Holy Grail, which if you are a Patreon subscriber, we talk about it this week on our Patreon episode. You can become a Patreon subscriber by going to patreon.com slash theimportantcinemaclub. If you want to hear two bespectacled white nerds that are also male talk about uh, Monty Python's Holy Grail (laughs) for the thousandth time in your life, we have lots of insights. But I think that we should jump to when he actually directed his first feature film, Solo, which was Jabberwock. And this was kind of a follow-up to Monty Python, The Holy Grail, mm-hmm. also set in the Middle Ages. But Terry Gilliam wanted it to be a uh, like opposite to Monty Python's Holy Grail. Like he liked to talk about that, where Monty Python's Holy Grail was very sketch-based and had like humor all over the place. He wanted something that was more story-based, which is ridiculous if you watch Jabberwocky. I think it has less of a story yeah. than Holy Grail does, if if possible. But he wanted a different aesthetic, even though it is in the same medieval setting. Mm-hmm. And I think that what you see in Jabberwocky, which actually stars a Python, Michael Palin, the nicest man in the room, is that Gilliam was all about the grit and grime in Holy Grail because whoa boy is it all over Jabberwocky yeah you can definitely see what he brought and what Terry Jones brought to Holy Grail because Jabberwocky is not very funny I didn't like it that much when I was a kid because I was like well this is not like Holy Grail and it's not like Brazil like what is this middle thing that I'm getting I had the exact same feeling in fact but you know watching it now older and wiser I still found it a bit of a difficult experience but I enjoyed the experience oh, I loved it this time <laughs> especially watching Criterion's new transfer oh. where it's just like it's so textured there's smoke everywhere and mud and because Gilliam uh, said that he didn't have that much money or time everything is shot in these like beautifully framed wide shots where the comedy just plays out a little bit longer than it should and everyone is grimy and gross and coughing and farting and he's very influenced by Bosch and Mm -hmm. Bruegel so the movie looks like one of their paintings you know just full of filth and grime but at the same time Gilliam is still tapping into that kind of Mad Magazine energy it was actually co-written with um, somebody who was a gag artist for Mad Magazine so you'll have this grit and grime punctured by a night fly Flying through the air and like landing with his legs splayed in the mud. And he still has like some of the sensibility of Python and certainly some of the, I guess, some of the same view of class that mm-hmm. Python has. So it's a world where, you know, th- there are there are two classes, you know, there are the peasants who are living in, in just squalor and disgust. And there are the the royalty who live in luxury but are also miserable, also and, gross miserable looking. and gross looking. Yeah. Like the king is this frail, tiny little man who gets covered in like this giant sheet so he's like a peanut wrapped up in a blanket i mean as they mentioned in interviews you know films like camelot that were coming out this Mm. time made the middle ages look so glamorous but Mm. you know people were not washing in the middle ages (laughs) people didn't have electricity in the middle ages but i think what's important about jabberwocky is that it is grounded in the same way that brazil is by a kind of lame silly but essentially good figure in the case of Jabberwocky, Michael Palin. Well, it introduces a theme that Gilliam would develop in later movies where Palin is this like young peasant boy whose father is a carpenter and Palin is very sort of business oriented. Mm-hmm. He, wa- he, he just wants to be an accountant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And But yeah, he is like kind of a nice guy. And and the whole story is this, this lame 
unremarkable doofus being thrown through all these extraordinary situations when all he wants is just to have like a modest life yeah the film famously ends with him becoming like a hero getting half the kingdom and the princess and michael palin is just horrified by all this because he just wants the girl next door who treats him like garbage (laughs) and this is not a perspective that terry gilliam shares i think oh you don't think so I mean, I don't think Terry Gilliam wants to be a mild accountant. No, I I don't think so either. I think he finds humor in that, but he also finds humor in the fact that, like, this uh, protagonist cannot get what he wants, even Mm -hmm. though that it's so low on the totem pole. Mm -hmm. But I think that, like, the comedy in this film... It's my favorite kind of Gillian comedy that it's so horrifying. There's a scene where Michael Palin um, bumps into a man who's begging for money and who's chopped off his own foot. Yeah. (laughs) And the guy's like, I just got this great idea. I chopped off my own foot. And then people give me more money. And he's like, maybe we could both chop off our own, our feet. Then we could probably get double. It's such a dense experience. Mm -hmm. There's so much happening in the frame. So much to look at. uh, So many characters. And they're all, all the characters are prickly and eccentric. Mm -hmm. Or difficult or covered in gore. And then at the end of the movie, it just gives what, you know, a male teenager wants, which is over the top violence (laughs) and a giant uh, monster uh, Mm -hmm. that's a big rubbery suit. It has that handcrafted quality. I actually, like, watching it this time, I remember as a kid finding the Jabberwocky looked really goofy with it because it has, like, big, like, floppy feet. Mm -hmm. But, like, the design of it and its rotten wings and its red eyes is, and the way that it's framed as, like, forced perspectives to look really big, Mm -hmm. uh, I found really endearing and, and, you know, tactile Mm -hmm. in a way that Gilliam obviously hasn't touched in two decades. Mm -hmm. And this kind of fantastical feel of Jabberwocky, this medieval thing, is something that, you know... Gilliam would only really play with in his earlier, funnier films. (laughs) Because then after Jabberwocky, you have Time Bandits, which wasn't a big part of my youth. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a big Gilliam film in my imagination. I think it just came to it too late and Brazil dominated so much. I certainly liked it as a kid. And, you know, it has a lot of things that I miss from Terry Gilliam. Mm -hmm. Like... It's also grounded with this, like, boy who's the audience surrogate. Mm -hmm. You know, we're we're missing a character like that in recent Gilliam films. And it takes time to just, like, you know, have a little bit of awe and wonder in its world. Like, this is kind of amazing what you're seeing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that extends to the film that would come to define Terry Gilliam's uh, working career, which is uh, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, which was famously a horrifying production. There's like a book written about it. There's a documentary on the DVD. The fact that like the producer was promising stuff. They were in Italy. The production was so big. They were moving so slow. It went over budget. It went over budget before they even started rolling. Yeah, it was just madness. But the final film, which I rewatched this week, is amazing. It has everything that I love about Terry Gilliam. And watching it now, it actually has some like weird meta commentary that I don't think that he intended at the time. Like the fact that... It's like all of Gilliam films about somebody telling a story and the layers between imagination and reality. But it's this Baron Munchausen is portrayed as this very old man that when he goes on these adventures, he suddenly feels young again. And at one point in the film, he's like, you know, we can't do this anymore. You know, it's too much. We can't go on these adventures. You know, we're old. And I realize that, you know, I'm stretching here, but like his team is actually the exact members of the Monty Python team as well. (laughs) So you could even watch it as like a metaphor for Python themselves where they're like, listen, we can't do this anymore. We can't do this fantastical stuff because that's what we did when we were young. Like we have to move on and realize it can't happen. Well, you know, Gilliam keeps returning to this figure of the dreamer mm-hmm. who is an outcast of society and, and who is not appreciated by society. And 
you know, if I've been a little disenchanted from Gilliam Mm -hmm. in recent years, part of it is that I keep seeing a lot of like, there's something self-aggrandizing about this archetype he Hmm. keeps returning to. It's like, you know, we know that with Brazil and with Munchausen, those were the two movies where he was very famously battling studio executives. He did it again with Harvey Weinstein, famously, mm. on The Brothers Grimm. Parnassus has this sort of character. The Man Who Killed Don Quixote has this character. And it's like, I, I don't know, there's something a bit like self flatter He's flattering himself. Yeah, I I think that like Baron Munchausen, though, it hits that perfect balance where the Baron can be charming and a hero, but he also has foibles and is kind of lame. And it shows that he can be mean. But you have this grounding character in Sarah Pauly as this person that wants to protect her family, who's currently under siege in the film. And she's like, listen, we have to do this adventure. We have to keep moving. Mm -hmm. And because she's there that kind of centers the entire picture mm-hmm. that you can have these crazy wild characters, but they're out of control mm-hmm. and you need somebody to help them and to get to the next level. And the movie is actually kind of moving in that way when you have those contrasts. But as Gilliam goes on in his career, he loses that Sarah Polly character to give things a context. Because like when you're watching something like um, Tideland, which was Gilliam's return to like indie, like I'm going to do it all my own way. You realize the limits there is when he can't uh, imbue the screen with this fantastical vision. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a movie where there's kind of no point of entry for me. Oh, man, how excited was I for that movie? I was like rubbing my hands together. Now we're going to see the pure Gilliam. Mm -hmm. After Harvey Weinstein has kept him down, he's going to rise from the ashes. And the the premise seems so like pure Gilliam as well, which is uh, a girl left on her own having to, you know, survive basically by her imagination and her imagination alone. Mm -hmm. But what you get in this movie and you get in most of Gilliam's later day films is that there's no way to illustrate this imagination. So you're just left with this character kind of trying to act it out. And unfortunately in this film, it's done in a very thick Southern accent and you really feel like you're trapped with a little girl doing a bunch of voices for two agonizing hours. When I think about Gilliam, I'm reminded of what Rosini said about Wagner. He said, he has lovely moments and brutal quarter hours. (laughs) There are so many scenes, especially in the later Gilliam movies, where it's like a medium shot with a fisheye lens Mm -hmm. and there's somebody in the middle of the frame and they're they're mugging up a storm and there's all this visual information around them and it's too much for your eyes to digest and the scene goes on and on and on and on and on and they're hitting the same note I think that Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is the perfect transitional movie for Gilliam because that movie even when I was a kid and I watched it that first half hour is nuts it's so much fun oh yeah so much stuff is happening and as the movie goes on uh i mean gilliam actually gave a really good analogy for it it's you're starting to take the not fun drugs <laughs> so it's not an enjoyable experience anymore by the end you realize these two people who seem charming and wacky at the beginning are actually violent and mean and can be a threat mm-hmm. and that movie is exactly terry gilliam's career where <laughs> the beginning is fantastical and wild and crazy and then you realize like oh man like this is not fun anymore it's still doing the same things but it's not being presented in a way that i have anything to grasp onto uh do you want to talk about his brand new movie the yeah. man who killed don quixote uh I, yeah we we have to and it's why we're doing the podcast this week this is a film that were you excited for the man who killed don quixote 
Well, I saw Lost in La Mancha in a theater. The documentary that catalogs the uh, disintegration of the first, not the first, I think it was the second or third production of Gilliam's Don Quixote after it started shooting. And this documentary, which I think came out in 2002, 2003, is one of those like things that's very central to the myth of Terry Gilliam, Mm -hmm. where he's a director who has been plagued by bad luck. You know, when he first tried to shoot this movie with Johnny Depp and Jean Rochefort, it collapsed after six days because there were floods, mm-hmm. there were airplanes going overhead. Uh, the, you know, Jean Rochefort had a, what, a hernia or something? Yeah, he had like an infection, a prostate infection, I believe, and he couldn't ride a horse, yeah. which was very important for the film. And, you know, Gilliam in every interview he ever gave after that was like, we're going to make this movie, you know, mm-hmm. actors would come and go. Robert Duvall was going to do it. Michael Palin was going to do it. John Hurt. But it just never happened. And I actually rewatched a documentary this week and watching it this time, I was like, Gilliam just doesn't want to budge. And I think mm-hmm. that's what is important about his character is that he will not compromise on his vision. Now, he will say differently. He'll say like, listen, my job as a director is to figure stuff out and to figure out how to do this impossible on screen. But then it's also documented over and over again in something like the 12 Monkeys documentary, uh, The Hamster Factor. Mm-hmm. The fact that like a scene was taking forever because Gilliam wanted that hamster to turn in the wheel in the background. <laughs> and because he couldn't get that, the scene just dragged on and on and on. And watching The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, I was like, it sucks that you're main actor can't do what you want him to do and this it's tight and the funding is tied to it but could you find somebody else like if you want to make this film get out there get an actor real quick like i don't know put somebody in makeup something and do it but like he wouldn't budge on that then i thought uh you know i don't want to be an armchair quarterback like i don't know the experience he's going through how difficult it is and then i was like wait a minute i made a movie and an actor injured themselves and (laughs) couldn't continue a feature film and I figured it out. We cast somebody else. Like <laughs> We just had to keep moving forward. Money was tight. Money was super tight. And he has his vision that he wants to follow. And, you know, he wasn't able to make uh, that version of Don Quixote, but he promised that he would. And he eventually did with Adam Driver and Jonathan Price, who I think is a great pick for Don Quixote. Mm-hmm. He like looks like him at this point. He can act kind of grand and big. Great actor. And also know. look really weak. And I like Adam Driver because he brings a kind of like realness to his roles in these big fantastical things because that's just his character and then the movie comes out and it's exactly what i expected well we saw the trailer a few months ago and Mm. nothing about it encouraged me no um and we watched it this week because it's having a strange release Mm -hmm. i don't think it did that well in europe so it only got a one night only yeah one night only i think it played maybe two nights in canada but that was pretty much it And it's kind of a catalog of all the things I don't like about Terry Gilliam anymore. I agree. So the plot is Adam Driver plays this uh, hack commercial director, directing commercials, that is. Mm -hmm. And he's off somewhere in Spain creating a commercial that involves Don Quixote. And then he is reminded that Don Quixote was actually his student film Mm -hmm. when he was younger and more ambitious, which he also shot in Spain. So he goes to the town where he shot it. He encounters some of the people who he worked with, whose lives have gone, you know, not so well. And then he finds the old man who he cast as Don Quixote, who is now living his life as if he were Don Quixote. Oh, so that means we'll go into fantastical sequences where this heroic character can like fight giants and stuff like that, right? I don't think they have the budget for that, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, and you know the whole movie is shot i mean it is such an eyesore Uh, it is ugly looking hurts to look at and it's also 
of miserable experiences. Every character is so hateful. Even Don Quixote, played by Johnson Price, who's giving it his all, is such a miserable person. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if Gilliam understands that, like, the audience will kind of react this way to Quixote. I don't know if he's too involved in what's going on. Instead of having this kind of like, uh, you know, Quixote is this heroic figure who wants to go do this amazing stuff. And this guy who's like, no, this is not real. You're crazy. You get this hateful person who's running around and a guy who's also hateful who are just butting heads the entire time. Right. I mean, he's basically reprising the drama of the Fisher King, mm -hmm. where it's this crazy guy and this other guy who feels guilt and responsibility but for Robin, what happened. Robin Williams is charming in the Fisher King for right. all the mugging and craziness, and who has a sympathetic backstory that the audience can care about. Well, also, the Fisher King will sometimes, like, slow down mm -hmm. and just, like, let you sit with it a little bit. There's the scene in Central Park in the Fisher King, for mm -hmm. instance, where they're lying there and Robin Williams is talking about his story where it's like it's not assaulting you with absurd camera angles and mm. and fractured editing there's no relief in Kyote though like there's no time to get a feel for this relationship and adam driver and jonathan price are just directed to flail for yeah, the whole movie the entire film loud 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 with screaming nothing and when you don't have those fantastical elements to kind of like make the medicine go down and gilliam has said that brazil he considers it an assault an unpleasant experience, but it's just different in Don Quixote. Well, I mean, I knew we were in trouble really early on where there's that scene when Adam Driver and his crew are uh, for dinner at this restaurant and it's shot with this like wide, widescreen um, fisheye lens with just like so many bodies in the frame and like it's disorienting it's like who should i be looking at right now who, mm. like how am i supposed to follow this there's not you never get a feel for adam driver as a character or why you should like him and you know the where should i look at is an advantage in brazil because there's so much stuff to look at and here it's just like just i don't bodies. know which person yeah what body and also like uh terry gilliam's a bit of a man out of time i would say yes uh, uh this is a film that more than any of the other ones that I watched, I was like, oh, no, Grandpa, come on. Well, you know, we all remember last year when he was making those comments about the Me Too movement mm. and about, oh, you know, I wish I was a black lesbian and all that stuff. He's saying that stuff on the commentary for Tideland as well. Oy. Well, you know... Uh, the Man Who Killed Don Quixote is, I think, quite a sexist film. Yes, it's, it's got, also a racist film. It's got film. racist jokes, too. And, you know, it makes me, like, kind of look back at the older ones mm -hmm. and think, okay, this is like... This is a blind spot for Terry. Mm -hmm. Like he, you know, the man who killed Don Quixote has a straight up like virgin whore complex with, you know, the two female characters. There's the Oh, uh, but it's based on the original material, Will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. That doesn't mean that you need to kind of regurgitate it wholesale in this film that is a complete reinvention. I, I mean, of Gilliam it. believes in it. So. Yeah. And it's also a film that like it, it kind of espouses this idea that you'll hear Gilliam say over and over in interviews now, which is like, ah. PC culture. Nobody wants to be offended anymore. Yeah. And it's such like a misunderstanding. You hear this kind of rhetoric from a lot of people who were, I don't know, more popular back in the day and now feel that society society's keeping them down. Yeah, because they're yeah. dreamers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's and like, you're white. Like, you've never had any problems in your life because of that. Gilliam's had plenty of chances. Yeah, <laughs> yes. And, you know, the movie keeps gesturing towards something like 
potentially interesting mm-hmm. like with what responsibility does this headstrong artist have to the people who he works with you know um like like there are some questions the fact that so many of the people who worked on adam driver's student film their lives have crumbled related to him because he put these ideas in their head and you know we hear the stories from the production of The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Sarah Pauly, Eric Idle, others who worked on that talk about how unsafe it was. Mm-hmm. And you can almost see Gilliam like going in this direction of interrogating some of these ideas about like the great artist and making people suffer for your art. But he doesn't go there. The movie ends in a way that pays off the title, but it doesn't, it, it has no emotional weight. It doesn't mean anything. I don't know if it does for Terry Gilliam, if he sees it in a different way, but like it wraps up in a way where you're like, okay, I guess. <laughs> I wish he made it in the nineties. Yeah. I wish he would have looked good at least. I wish he had made it. Yeah. When he was doing the Johnny Depp version, there was all these kind of like fantastical uh, sequences where Don Quixote would fight like um, giant puppet marionettes that they built and all this you know, crazy kind of stuff. But here it just feels like Gilliam, he just needs to get it out. Even though it's a story he told before in The Fisher King yeah. and The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, it's not a story he needs to tell. Why did he spend 25 years trying to make this? It's just the same <laughs> ideas that he's done every other time. <laughs> I don't know. But you know what I do know is that we do have Brazil. I have The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Time Band is Jabberwocky. Monty Python. Monty Python. Like, it's all still there, right? You know, you you can't always do the same stuff. You get old, Will. Yeah. You can't relive your glory days. Looks like Don Quixote uh, got beaten by that windmill. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Rest in peace, Don Quixote. So, as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. This week on our Patreon, as I mentioned before, we're talking about Monty Python's Holy Grail, a film that me and Will hadn't watched for a decade, for obvious reasons. Dennis, there's some lovely filth down here. <laughs> so, uh, to listen to us talk about it, and of course, we go long as we share all our favorite jokes. No, 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 we actually try to have some insightful things to say. You can listen to us by $5 a month, become a Patreon subscriber, and that's at patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. And just a reminder, to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate it. And to follow us on Twitter at IMPRT. Cinema Club. And you can follow me at uh, DeCluje, D-E-C-L-O-U-X, letter J, and Will at... I'm at uh, Will Sloan Esquire, E-S-Q. And we're also on Facebook. Uh, It's just a group called The Important Cinema Club. I haven't plugged it in it feels like a year, and I should actually try to do that kind of stuff every week, Mm -hmm. because... The more people that, like, see when we post new episodes or, you know, we have, like, a weekly movie club sometimes, the more people can participate, and that's better for everybody, especially us. Uh, I should also let people know, um, if you don't have Apple Podcasts, but you have a phone, I would recommend just getting a podcatcher, and you can just search, like, I use Podcast Addict on my Android phone, and you can just search Important Cinema Club, and it'll update it um, just regularly, just to let you know when a new episode comes. We're trying to stay to a more regular schedule, but sometimes a few days go by, and people forget. Like, when I started listening to podcasts, I would just check every day that it was posted. Yeah. <laughs> and then sometimes you just forget, and you stop listening. So I'm it, sorry, we, uh, we, we have day jobs. <laughs> yeah. All right. So next week, we need to do our due diligence as loyal uh, and respectful full Catholic yeah. <laughs> uh, members, right, Will? We are apostles of cinema. Yeah. And so uh, with Easter coming up next weekend, and I just realized that this will probably be after Easter. It will. It will be a few days after Easter. So, you know, get all uh, get all high on uh, holy water and come back to us because we are going to be talking about Jesus on film. Uh, do you celebrate Easter, Will? 
yeah, I go home and see my parents. Yeah, yeah. not me. <laughs> nope. It is not a holiday that I care very much about, uh, unless it means finding chocolate in, in your home. <laughs> uh, it's a good supplement to Christmas, I think. That's right. It's a little bit, bit of a way station while you're waiting for Christmas. If you don't get any presents on Easter. I would get some presents, you uh, know. What, you do? Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never heard of that. Not, not extravagant, but yeah. But you get presents. Yeah. I've never heard of anybody getting presents on Easter. Huh. That's something new. I guess my mom isn't a good Catholic. I guess we just did it right. Yeah, you did do it right. What the hell's the point of having a holiday if there's no present? I mean, I would get chocolate, but... I I, I eat chocolate, too, of course. That's a given. You get presents and chocolate? Yeah. Wow. Not a lot of presents. I usually get, like, one or two. Okay. All right. So uh, our discussion, our personal lives, and the way that we've been taught religion as we grow up, I'm sure will come up in the episode where we talk about... Uh, Pasolini's The Gospel of St. Matthew. Mm -hmm. And also The Greatest Story Ever Told. Mm -hmm. And will we perhaps do um, a certain last temptation on Patreon? Maybe. You'll have to listen to find out. Interesting. And the reason that we're doing those two movies is I'm actually interested in the way that you know, Jesus, a religious figure, is portrayed in kind of grittier art house cinema and like the big Hollywood, um, you know, your grandparents would go see the movie even though they haven't seen a film in like 10 years in the cinema because it's a religious one. Yeah, they do seem like the two extremes mm-hmm. of the Jesus canon. So until then, my name's Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. All right, now we're down to what's really important. Who's your favorite python, Will? Oh, man. Uh, So they're all great. There are no losers in this category. But um, I think that while John Cleese has had higher highs, Mm -hmm. you know, he had Faulty Towers and he had a fish called Wanda. And I think that, like, you know, at his best, there's nobody funnier than John Cleese. Mm -hmm. But I think Michael Palin wins on points. Really? What do you mean by points? Like Uh, he's got a good filmography, Mm -hmm. you know, including uh, A Private Function, Brazil, um, Fish Called Wanda, all the way up to Death of Stalin. Mm. It's not a huge filmography. Oh, he's but, so funny in Death a, of Stalin. It's a solid one. He's very funny. And he's amazing in A Fish Called Wanda. Yeah, he is. Um, but also, like, he's done so many different kinds of things. He's done the travel shows. Mm. Uh, and he's also the guy who you want to be your friend. Yeah, well, he's a friendly one, right? Yeah. John Cleese, you can definitely tell he's the thornier one. That would be difficult to work with. And I also think, like, John Cleese has to bear some responsibility for the fact that, like, uh, given what a comic genius he is, he has a terrible filmography. Oh my god, his filmography is terrible. Like, he is the definition of selling out. Oh my god. And, you know, he doesn't have that many movies where he stars, okay? Mm-hmm. There's Clockwise, there's Privates on Parade, you know, Fierce Creatures. You know, these are not classics. No. Um. So A Fish Called Wanda is the one, like, copper-bottom classic film that he stars in. And then after that, it's like after A Fish Called Wanda, it was like, okay, that's it for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Just going to do cameos from now on. Do you need a British actor to appear in your film that's a John Cleese type? Sure. Upper crust, kind of, like, snooty. Then I'm the man for you. What, you want me to be the new Q in James Bond? Sure, whatever, I'll be that guy. Nearly Headless Nick in the first two Harry Potter films. Oh yeah, that? I forgot about that. That was a character that kind of disappeared. He was all over Shrek. Yes. But there, there were also like so many bad comedies around the turn of the millennium he was in, like the Out of Towners, where he also played a hotel owner. Mm-hmm. And there was Rat Race, of course. I mean, Rat Race is probably one of his better movies, which is <laughs> a fucking shame. <laughs> What, you mean our generation's uh, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World? That, exactly Wait, that did, film. Did you see Rat Race in theaters? Yes. Did you like it? Yeah, sure. Uh, I, I re- It was one of those films that I left and I was like, I don't know how I feel about that. Like, I went to the movies and it was a big deal, but was it funny? Well, that's a good question because 
there's a lot happening in it. Has I, Jim Abrahams yeah. let me down? Like, are there any good jokes in it? That's the paradox. Ah, uh, there is. The Hitler. Uh, the, the Hitler, Hitler joke. Yeah. John, uh, John Lovitz. That's very funny. And uh, Mr. Bean, very disappointing in the film. Well, yeah, he just plays Mr. Bean, except as an Italian. <laughs> yes. But uh, anytime it cuts to John Cleese doing his shtick, making bets, it's pretty funny. I saw Charlie's Angels full throttle again <laughs> recently. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I like to revisit the classics. Yeah, you want to see if uh, McGee will be the um, vulgar auteur you want him to be. Yeah, I'm trying to turn him into like our Frank Tashlin or something like that, you know? <laughs> And, and uh, what is John Cleese? Great in it? Yeah, oh yeah. John Cleese is one of many stars in it. He plays Lucy Liu's father. Um, I, mean, I do not remember Full Throttle. <laughs> and there's a comic subplot where there's a, a mistake where he thinks that the three angels are in a gay relationship together, like a poly relationship. And so, you know, they'll come in and they'll be like, like after some big action scene and they're like, Oh, whoa, boy, it sure was a, st-. um, and you know, there'll be a lot of double entendres where it's mm-hmm. misinterpreted and Cleese is just like, going, Whoa, Oh, 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 Whoa. I mean, that's usually all that's demanded of him. You know what? I'm looking at his filmography here. He started in a lot or like appeared in a lot less films than I thought he did. I mean, he had his George of the Jungle. Um, Who could forget? Yeah. Around the world in 80 days. In the early 90s, he's not in much. He's in Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein. It looks like he's in Pink Panther 2, but not Pink Panther 1. Yes. He played the like Herbert Lom character, the inspector. <laughs> oh, Pink Panther 1 had Kevin Klein in that role. Oh, did it? Yeah. Do you think John Cleese is a step down or a step up from Kevin Klein. Oh, at this point, probably a step down. Yeah, probably. Sorry to say. I mean, Kevin Klein is a weird actor that he actually, like, doesn't do much if you look at his filmography. Yeah. I remember someone saying that they, his nickname is Kevin D. Klein. Which is too bad, because he also doesn't have that great a filmography. No, he doesn't have a very good filmography uh, either. 